We're in the book of Matthew, chapter 7, as we move verse by verse through the book of Matthew. Today, the sermon title, To Judge or Not to Judge, that is the question. So we're going to read the passage together. It's Matthew, chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. If you're able to stand with us, would you stand for the reading of the Word of God? Matthew 7, 1 through 12, these are the words of Jesus. Verse 1 reads this way, do not judge so that you will not be judged, Matthew 7, 2. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will, he, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then being evil not know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? In everything therefore treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. Father, thank you for your holy word. It is living and it is powerful. And Jesus, thank you for what you preached here because this is a question that so many people have in our world about judging and what does the Bible actually say about it and how do we navigate such a topic as this. So we wanna have ears to hear what your spirit would say to us and we need wisdom in discerning how we're supposed to judge things, Lord, and what does the kingdom of God look like? What does kingdom discernment look like? How can we have the heart of our king more and more as we live? So would you help us, Lord, to have understanding, have ears to hear, and a heart to apply your word, and may you be glorified in these moments we have together. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. To judge or not to judge, that is the question. So last week we talked about worry and uh, Jesus essentially said, don't worry. And then today we're talking about judging and Jesus says, don't judge. So after these two sermons, most of us will have nothing more to talk about. <laughs> Let that sink in for a moment and receive it as you will. <laughs> so uh, in past years, uh, in the past 10 or 15 years, I remember reading a lot of uh, information on Bible verses and stuff like that, and what were the most popular, well-known verses in the country and in the world? And at one point, and I don't know if it's true today, this author said that Matthew 7-1 had surpassed John 3-16 in terms of people knowing it. People, whether they're believers or unbelievers, know, judge not lest you be judged. And when do you think that they use it? When you might be saying something corrective to them. And then they say something like this. Doesn't the Bible say somewhere you're not supposed to judge, right? And we hear that, and sometimes, depending on your familiarity with the Bible, you might think, well, yeah, there is a verse that says that, and what does the Bible say about this? And as I've watched our world, and I know this is quite plain to all of us, our world has become now a hyper-opinionated place because what's happened now is social media has given everyone a platform for their opinions and then everyone else can comment on whatever they put on social media and you can watch someone put their opinion out there and have a platform and then everybody comment on what they said and then people will debate and judge one another in the opinion section as well. And that's where we live today. It seems like we're very divided. We could talk about division in politics. We can talk about, you know, 
Things that we talk about, maybe we go out to lunch with our friends and we can criticize politicians, we can criticize coaches. He should have done this and they would have won the game. And it seems like there's a lot of areas where we think it's okay. We've kind of baptized judging people and it's, it's certainly okay to judge that and this and these people. But when it comes to judging me like about moral things or religious truth, that's all of a sudden when we get a little touchy and people can quote Matthew 7, 1. Don't, you're being judgy, man. Don't judge me. Well, what did Jesus actually say about judging? Was he basically saying that all judgment is wrong? Or was he bringing clarity about the type of judgment that we all need to practice? Well, I think the latter is true and it's gonna be, become very clear for us because we all know you guys make judgments every single day. You make judgments about your friend groups. You make judgment about what you're gonna watch, what you're gonna wear, where you would go today. And little judgments uh, every single day, probably every hour of every day, we all make judgments. And in the Christian world, we sometimes call that discernment. And discernment is really just another word for judging. So the Bible does talk about this topic and the connecting thread throughout this, these ideas is the idea of relationships. How do we navigate this? Let me give you some structure for those of you who like to take notes on the structure of these 12 verses. Verses one through five talk about people who are too critical in their judgment. Verses one through five. Verse six talks about people who are too uncritical in their judgment. So too critical, verses one through five. Verse six, too uncritical in their judgment. Verses seven through 11 talk about God's provision for making good judgment, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And then verse 12 is the kind of the capping big concept. However you want people to treat you, treat them. You can think about judging. Whoever, however you want people to deal with specks in your eye, you should deal with specks in their eye the same way. And then Jesus gives us the famous golden rule, for such is the law and the prophets. So let's jump in with the opening verse, and it reads this way. Do not judge, 7-1 of Matthew, lest you be judged. The word for judge there is used twice, and it's the Greek word krino. It's a technical word for legal decisions, but it comes to be known generally as forming judgments or reaching conclusions about both things and people. In the New Testament, there are a handful of Greek words from krino to anakrino, diakrino, dakimatso, and parazzo, and all of them are basically synonymous. They deal with concepts like this. They carry the idea of judging, testing, examining, discriminating, discerning, deciding, approving, or weighing. And so this is basically what it means when the Bible uses this idea to judge. You might want to replace that or at least add the word discerning because that's the idea of judging, making good, solid, biblical kingdom decisions since we've been learning about the kingdom of God. Jesus is not outlawing all judgment, but he is specifically talking about a certain type of judgment. If you look ahead just for a second, notice in verse six, Jesus called certain people dogs and others pigs. Sounds like a judgment to me. <laughs> He'll go on to talk about entering through the narrow gate in verse 13. He'll talk about in verse 15, just skip down for a second, beware of false prophets. How could you beware of them unless you made a judgment? In verse uh, 18, he talks about you'll know people by their fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. He talks about in verse 20, you'll know them by their fruits. Throughout this whole sermon, Jesus has been making judgments. And to be made in the image of God, to be a moral being, and I would argue that all humans are moral beings, means that you will make judgments. In fact, one of the major ideas of the Imago Dei in the Latin to be made in the image of God is that we make judgments. Animals do things by instincts. Humans make judgments. We make right or wrong judgments. We try to discern good and evil, etc. So people might say they are amoral, but nobody is amoral. 
if people say, well, all morals are relative, steal their stereo, uh, take their car and see how they feel about moral absolutes. See, all people believe that there are right and wrong things. We can talk about people being amoral or relativistic in a classroom, but it doesn't work in everyday life. So to be made in the image of God means that you make moral decisions every day, and that's not off limits biblically. What the Bible teaches is to make good decisions, to make right decisions, to have the same heart as your king and your Lord. So I'm gonna put on the screen six things. I wrote an article some years ago with Professor Craig Hawkins. These are six things we're called not to judge. I'm gonna move kind of quickly but you can always go back and watch this. Let me give them to you these six things. Number one, we are not to judge by a double standard or hypocritically that these are the verses before us, Matthew 7, 1 through 5. I think that's pretty clear. Don't be a hypocrite when you judge. Number two, we are not to judge superficially or by mere appearance. Jesus said, don't judge according to appearances. Make a righteous judgment. That's number two. Number three, we are not to judge people's motives. 1 Corinthians 4, 3 through 5. I don't know everybody's motives. I might have a pretty good idea or I might come to a conclusion of what might motivate a person to do whatever they do, but I don't really know because I don't know everybody's heart. I don't know what's going on in their mind. Only they know that and God knows that. So I gotta be careful about motives. Number four, we are not to judge one another on non-essential matters or matters of taste or opinion. Key chapter, Romans chapter 14. Example, whether someone eats meat or not, whether someone worships on a Saturday or Sunday. These are matters of preference. They are not essential doctrines. Therefore, we give grace to one another in matters of opinion. Number five, we are not to judge what people's ultimate rewards will be. Each one of us will appear before the Bema seat. Our works will be tested, whether they're precious uh, commodities like silver and gold, etc., or wood, hay, and stubble. Rewards will be determined by God when he tests each one of our work. I don't know what your reward's gonna be, nor do I know what mine's gonna be. Only God knows that. He's gonna test the work, so we'll wait until that day. Number six. We are not to judge people's ultimate destiny. You can look at James 4.12 and 1 Samuel 2.6. We may have a pretty good idea looking at the fruit of one's life, whether someone's a Christian or not, but we don't know everything. We don't know what happened to someone in their dying moments. Even if they were, you know, look like a non-Christian their whole life, did they cry out to God in their last breaths? We don't know that. And while we can have a pretty good idea, we're not the ones determining where someone's going. Now, that doesn't mean we can't warn people of judgment and hell. I think we should. And I think we should do that, obviously, with as much grace as possible. We should speak the truth in love. We can warn people that if they reject the gospel, they'll be under the judgment of God. But we don't make the determination of their final destiny. Only God does that, and that is his prerogative, not mine. Other than that, other than those six things that I know of, we are commanded to judge but we're commanded to make a righteous judgment. We're commanded to be able to see clearly and take logs out of our eyes before we make judgments about specks in other people's eyes. In the book of Revelation, Jesus judges the seven churches. You're doing this well, this is not so good. Why don't you, I'm gonna commend you for this, but I want you to fix that. That's the ultimate judge. He's able to see the good things in our life and the specks that need to go and sometimes the logs that need to go, amen? So if he made proper judgments, we need to have the right kind of judgments as well. Here's a good guideline. We're to tolerate people and love them unconditionally, but we don't tolerate bad behavior or bad ideas or false ideas. The great evangelist D.L. Moody said, love will rebuke evil but will not rejoice in it. Love will be impatient of sin, but patient with the sinner. So we're called to make judgments that align with the kingdom of God. This is Psalm 19, 9 and 10. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. You guys remember that the Bereans were 
uh, accounted as more noble than those in Thessalonica, for they examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. Was it along with biblical revelation? If they tested Paul, then we need to be able to test everything. And 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says exactly that. Examine everything carefully, judge it, weigh it, discern, and hold fast to that which is good. That takes judgment, amen? We're to weigh things. We're to try to understand what's good and right and true. The Bereans are counted noble for that. Jesus talked about watching out for false teachers or people who are smooth with speech, etc. So the Bible is filled with these kinds of things as we weigh things and try to discern what's good and evil, what's best, and how we navigate this life. Now Jesus says in verse 2, here's where he clarifies the wrong kind of judgment or why we should be careful. He says, in the way you judge... He's using the idea of reciprocity or it's reciprocal. You will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So you can imagine maybe a, uh, something where you would be measuring something or you would be weighing something. And this is what Jesus says. He says, in the same way that you judge others, it's coming back to you. Now, I hope that makes you and I pause a little bit when we're quick to judge somebody else because Jesus is saying, the way that I judge, the measures that I use, the scales that I weigh other people on, I'm gonna be weighed on that same scale. And I think that Jesus is pointing to ultimate judgment before God when he will weigh everything, the motives of men's hearts, everything will be crystal clear. But I think there's something else here on another level. The way we judge other people ends up coming back to us. If you're harsh with people, you're probably going to get some harsh responses. If you're more gracious with people and gentle with people, they'll probably be more gracious and gentle with you. There is a reciprocal reality in the way we go about our lives. Now, I want you to turn, hold your place in Matthew, turn to the book of Romans, just one parallel passage to kind of bring this home. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, chapter two. The apostle Paul's writing to a Jewish and Gentile combined congregation. Oftentimes he's addressing Jewish people in this church. They're trying to uh, worship together and get on with things together as Jew and Gentile. And some things were difficult. And here's what he says in Romans 2. This is verses 1 and following. Therefore, he says, you have no excuse. Romans 2, 1. Every one of you who passes judgment for in the way that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. That's the key thing. Not that judging is wrong, but that you're doing the same things. And we know that the judgment of God, Romans 2, 2, rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Now notice this scary verse. But because of your stubbornness, you won't take the log out of your own eye, we might say, and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to to their deeds. Back to Matthew 7. You can see that the idea here is that if you're going to make a judgment, if you would lovingly remove a speck from a brother or sister's eye, just be careful that you don't have the same speck in your eye or something worse, like a log. Jesus, for illustration purposes, will actually take us into the workshop of a carpenter. And we know that Jesus was known as the carpenter and also the son of the carpenter. This was his trade. He would work with wood and the like. And here's what he says. Illustration now to bring it home. He says, why do you look at the speck? The NIV has speck of sawdust uh, or splinter uh, in, that's in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye. NIV, why do you look at the speck of sawdust or the splinter in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank that is in your own eye? 
Now, Jesus may have taken us right into the carpenter's workshop where imagine that you were working with a literal brother of yours. Let's just say two siblings working together in dad's carpenter shop. And they're constantly on one another, pointing out one another's faults and that kind of thing. And that's where Jesus takes us. And we all know that if you had a splinter in your eye, you ever gotten a piece of lint in your eye? Oh my, how you want it out. You get any little thing in your eye. I wear contact lenses and if you get something under your lens, usually you do something like this. Everybody get away from me. And you try to get in front of this little mirror and you're like, get it, I gotta get it out. Everything stops, right? Uh, some years ago, I was playing racquetball with some friends and I served the ball and a friend of mine was in this corner and I just peeked and the ball was right here and it hit me in the eye and drove my contact lens up into my eye. And my wife showed up and I was brave and noble. Get it out! Get it out! Anyway. <laughs> so went to the ER, but I remember, you know, the trauma from that. And you're like, it's so far up your eye. And when you have something in your eye, you want someone to help you get it out. Amen? If you get, ever get a splinter in your finger, how many of you, the world stops? Oh, I got a splinter! A splinter! <laughs> and then they got to get the, you know, the x-ray equipment and try to dig that thing out. Oh, easy, be nice. Right? But imagine, to take the illustration, and it's meant to be funny, here comes Mr. Log in his eye. Hey, let me take a look. You're getting beat up by the log that's in the guy's eye. Everywhere he turns, he's raking out rows of people. What would be good is if he took the log out so he could help you with the speck. As it stands... He's knocking everybody around with that log. That's the image that Jesus is get, giving. He's saying, look, Mr. Log in the eye. <laughs> First, do a little business with yourself, and then you'll be able to help me. I was reading an author this last week, and he said, these are what we might call our blind spots. We all have blind spots in our lives, and sometimes... We practice things that look terrible when other people are doing them, but we do the very same. And the image from a speck, a splinter, to a log means that you're doing worse things than the people you're condemning. You don't have the same splinter. You got a log. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, first, you got to do some healthy self-examination. I read another author. He was talking about his golf swing, and he said, you know, Whenever I play golf, I imagine what my golf swing looks like. And it looks like, you know, Freddie Couples. It's smooth, and I finish, and I hold the follow-through. And then someone filmed my golf swing. And I look like Charles Barkley. And uh, Charles Barkley was a great basketball player and a wonderful announcer, but not a good golfer. He has one of the ugliest golf swings on the planet. And... Oh, you know, Scottish poet put it this way. Oh, that we would see ourselves the way others see us. But we don't. Now, sometimes we might say, well, we're the, our own hardest critics. But sometimes we don't see our own logs. You know what I'm saying? Our own blind spots. And this is where we invite the Lord. Search me, O Lord. You know, know my anxious thoughts. If I have logs or splinters in my eye... Help me see the log and log out. <laughs> For those of you who like computers. And I would just say one more thing. Don't be a spectator. <laughs> Thank you for those gracious laughs. I felt some of you judging me. Uh, but anyway. Jesus says... How can you say to your brother, verse 4, let me take that speck out of your eye, and behold, the log or the plank is in your own eye. Here's the order. And politically correct Jesus says, you hypocrite. First, and of course, verses 1 through 5 are dealing with hypocritical judgment. If you want to categorize it, that's the wrong kind of judgment. You hypocrite, Jesus, that's the key word. You're being hypocritical. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you'll what? See clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is not saying you shouldn't be about gracious speck removal. In Matthew 18, he will say, if your brother sins, go and tell your brother his fault 
Warn him, if you will. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. And when you look at the original language there, Jesus says you've saved, saved him from further harm. If your brother's got a speck, you know he wants it out, but he just wants you to be gracious in the way that you come to him. And you might say, you know what? I used to have a log in my own eye. Sometimes people, when, they, when you want to point out a speck, they say something like this. Don't judge me, man, because in 1978, I know you were doing the same thing. And sometimes that's meant to deflect you from what they're really struggling with. Yes, everyone who would ever point out a speck in your life has probably had specks of their own. That's not the question. The question is, are they pointing out the speck accurately? And are their intentions to get the splinter out so you'll be better? If that's their heart towards you, then I would be more apt to receive that because a wise man will receive a rebuke and a correction. A fool will not. But if Mr. Log in the eye comes knocking me around or I know he's a hypocrite, and I know he's doing things a thousand times worse than me. And then he comes with his little magnifying glass. Now I'm going to probably be less receptive. Do you see Jesus' point? He's saying, just get the log out. Then you'll be able to see things the way you need to see them. We've all got blind spots. And I think this is just clearly what Jesus is talking about. This is the order. To get specks out, splinters out, it hurts a little bit. Sometimes it hurts to hear the truth from somebody. But I'll tell you what, my best friends in life over the years have told me the truth. And sometimes it was hard for me to hear. And, and the divine surgery, you know, when you got to get it out, it, it can hurt for a moment, but the benefits are ongoing, amen? If I leave it there, what happens? Infections, things get worse. So that's the idea of a true friend or a brother or sister who truly loves you. They will speak the truth in love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. All right, so now Jesus gives this interesting verse. He says, verse six, Matthew seven, do not give what is holy to dogs. And in the ancient world, dogs were scavengers. It was very rare to have a domesticated animal like a dog in your home. They ran around in packs and they would just eat whatever they could and they were an annoyance. Now, it's been clear from this pulpit that I'm a dog lover. I have a dog named Sage. She's like 11 years old now, and she pretty much lives by my side, and she knows how soft I am. Anytime I'm eating something, Sage is there. And she's like my little buddy, but she knows how soft I am. So whatever I'm eating, if I have a popsicle, she knows she's going to get the last bite of that popsicle. And she just waits and the tail's going, right? And, you know, when we're, whatever we're eating, I find a way to get sage a little bit. And I was thinking, you know, my dog's not like that. She's not an annoying scavenger. And then I looked down and we were eating a meal and she had her, her little head, her little chin on my knee. <laughs> and I was thinking scavenger. <laughs> you are one of those, aren't you? Anyway, now giving what's holy to dogs may speak of like the showbread, the things that the priests uh, sacrificed and were supposed to eat. You don't just throw that to the dogs, right? That's the image. And here, here a dog would represent a person. You don't throw pearls to pigs, verse six middle, lest they trample them under their feet. A pig doesn't know the value of pearls. The pig won't say, oh, that's lovely. Let's make a necklace out of that. It will just oink at you. I have a niece who lives in Tennessee. She may be watching. She's a pig lover. She loves pigs. She has multiple pigs. I don't think any one of them are named Wilbur. Charlotte's Web, never mind. So here's the thing. Dogs and pigs in the ancient world to the Jewish mind were unclean animals. You don't give what's unclean to dogs and pigs or dogs and hogs, if you will. Now you might say, what is Jesus talking about? He's saying, look, in the kingdom of God, we have the gospel of the kingdom. We share the gospel with people and we're supposed to share it with every creature under heaven, right? We try to share the gospel wherever we go. But let's say someone's close to things like that. Let's say that every time we come and we try to bring the gospel to someone, they not only do they reject it, but they get violent with us or they might want to beat us up. At some point, you have to make the call whether someone's open to spiritual things or not. 
Some of the great evangelists in the world say, you know, swing to the spiritual with someone from the natural to the spiritual and see if they're open. If they're not open or they get, you know, uh, violent or angry with you, of course, you're not going to try to shove it down their throat. And that's really what Jesus is saying. You need discernment about how you deal with the holy things. We deal as, uh, as the church with the most holy things in all of life. The truth of God, the truth of the gospel, that which is holy and precious. And we want to give it to people as much as we can. Jesus will later say, you know, if, if a home won't receive you or a town won't receive you, just shake the dust off your feet. Here's the key idea. There are certain people who cannot assess value. They can't judge things properly. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15, write it down. The natural man doesn't know how to appraise spiritual value. He puts no value on it. The spiritual man understands and appraises and no one judges him. He judges all things because he has the Holy Spirit and he's able to see value. He is a good appraiser of things. He's a good discerner of things. He can appraise things properly. The pig and dog in this scenario can't appraise value. They don't see it. They reject it. And Jesus is saying, be careful. Because if you throw your pearls at a pig, he might just think you're throwing rocks at him and charge at you and trample you down. So you got to be careful. Jesus talked about if a town won't receive you, then go to the next town. That kind of thing. I think Jesus practiced this in this way. Jesus wrapped the pearls of the kingdom in parables. And he would tell a parable. And the disciples said, why do you speak in parables? And he said, well, to you it's been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom and it's not given to them. And what's the difference between the two groups? It would seem that one group was open and pursuing understanding and another wasn't. So Jesus would tell a story and the disciples would ask for clarification. What does that mean? And what, what does that story mean? And he would reveal the pearl the kingdom of God is called the pearl of great price in one of Jesus' kingdom parables. A, a pearl of great value. But a pig doesn't understand the value of a pearl. He'll smash down that which is expensive and maybe trample you because he thinks you're throwing stuff at him. He doesn't know how to assess value. So we need discernment. Lord, who would you have me to witness to today? And who might I not witness to? How, how can I be wise? Missionaries need this etc. I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Now, what appears to be some disjointed verses actually fit well with the flow of thought. Let's read them together. This is Matthew 7, 7. Famous words, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it shall be opened. Now, ask, seek, and knock are all Greek present imperatives, which indicate keep on asking, keep on seeking, and keep on knocking. And I see a process here of uh, kind of things get ratcheted up in intensity from asking to then seeking to then knocking. If I were to ask you right now, and you can, you can talk back to me right now in this part of the sermon, I don't mind. I don't mind amens and hallelujahs either. If I were to ask you, what does the Bible overall teach is the most important thing for you to get, what would you say it is? Felt it out. Love, what else? Wisdom. Now, Jesus is talking about discernment and judging. And sometimes when people see these words and some other verses similar to this, they think that Jesus is making a carte blanche promise about prayer. Whatever you ask, whatever you seek, whatever you knock, it's going to be given to you. But let me submit to you that the flow of thought here is about judgment or discernment or wisdom in navigating life. I'm going to take you to just a couple of Proverbs. Hold your place in Matthew. We'll come back to that. Right after the Psalms, you got the Proverbs. It's wisdom literature. It's all about wise walking, making good decisions, avoiding evil, clinging to what's good. Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock. Let's pick up some of these themes in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1. My son, Proverbs 2, 1. If you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. 
If you cry for discernment, Proverbs 2, 3, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her, notice, as silver, ask, seek, and knock, and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity. Guarding the paths of justice, he preserves the way of his godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity and every good course. For wisdom will enter your heart, knowledge will be pleasant to your soul, discretion or good judgment will guard you, understanding will watch over you. Flip over to Proverbs 4, just a few pages to your right. Look at verse 5, Proverbs 4, 5. Acquire wisdom, Proverbs 4, 5, or get wisdom, the ESV says, get insight. Do not forget, do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her, that's wisdom, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. One more in Proverbs 8. Here, wisdom is personified. What does that mean? Wisdom is given personhood or personality, as though wisdom were speaking to us. And here's what it says. Proverbs 8, verse 13. It says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. Counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding, power is mine, by me, kings reign, and rulers decree justice. By me, that is wisdom, princes rule, and nobles, all who judge rightly. I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me. What's the promise? They will find me. Do you guys remember when the Lord appeared to Solomon, and the Lord said, Basically, you got a, a blank check, Solomon. Ask me what you want, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 3, asks for, what was it? Wisdom. And because he asks for wisdom and not wealth or honor, God added all those other things to him. He, he said, because you asked me for wisdom to rule my people, I'm going to add everything else to you that you didn't ask for. Listen to it. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things he will add to you. Solomon, the living example of the truth Jesus conveys. Ask, back to Matthew 7, seek and knock. I want you to think with me about these words. I don't think they're just synonyms for prayer. Ask sounds to me like praying. How about seek? What would it look like to seek wisdom? Since the flow of the verse is about, is about making good judgment, what does it mean to seek? Well, it looks something like this. I think when I'm asking the Lord about something, I pray about it, and then I begin to, I begin to search his word. I don't think the Lord imparts wisdom by osmosis. Just let it sink into my head in Jesus' name. Now, he wants you to read your Bible, take some highlighters, some pens, and begin to search out wisdom because God's word is filled with it. Some months ago, we were wrestling over something as an elder board, and we didn't know which way the Lord would have us to go. And so we began to pray, and we said we were going to wait on the Lord. And I was reading my Bible with this dilemma in mind, this situation we needed to decide on. And I was going to read something in Isaiah and something else caught my eye. It was kind of just, you know, one chapter over. And it literally, to me, leaped off the page and the Lord answered the issue we had as a board from a scripture in Isaiah. And to me, it was like, not only did it leap off the page, but the, I felt like the Lord basically spoke to my heart and said, that's my answer. And when I shared it with the elder board, everybody felt like, yeah, that resonates with all of us. I think the Lord spoke to you. I think that's what will happen sometimes. You ask, you pray, but you seek. You don't wait for Ed McMahon or whoever it is now to show up at your door with balloons and you've won $5,000 a week for life. Great. I don't have to get a job now. I don't have to do anything. 
No, you seek your Bible. You seek wisdom. And finally, you knock. What do you think the knocking metaphor could be? Do you think it could be asking someone else for wisdom? In the Christian world, we talk a lot about we should pray about things, search our Bibles, and then maybe get godly wisdom. Maybe the knock is a friend's door, a pastor's door, someone you respect in the Lord, and you say, hey, could, could you help me? I think this is the way the Lord's shown me this, and I've got this scripture, but I would like to get your wisdom on it. Ask, seek, and knock. If you lack wisdom, ask God, and he'll give generously. But I don't think that you just sit around and do nothing. You actively pursue. You try to get wisdom because getting wisdom is the preeminent thing. We just read it. Verse nine. Now Jesus moves into the image of a father. He's been saying that God is our father. And he says, and what man or father is there among you? Verse nine, Matthew seven. When his son shall ask him for a loaf or some bread, will he give him a stone? Dads want what's best for their kids. If he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? course not. We know that our father is good. And if you then being evil, we're all fallen human beings in a fallen world. But if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, human fathers want to give the best to their kids, moms and dads. How much more from the lesser to the greater shall your father who's in heaven give what is good? If you have an ESV, New King James, it says, give good things to those who ask him. When we ask the Lord, he wants to give us good things. I want you to turn to Luke 11. This is the parallel version of this sermon that Luke records. There's a little uh, insight here I want to show you. But I want to say something about our Heavenly Father. I certainly do not understand everything that goes on. And we pray about stuff. And sometimes it doesn't go the way that I would like it to go or I think it should go. And I'll put things before the Lord. And I have to rest in believing that God knows what's best. And that's not always easy for me. And I know it's not always easy for you. We have a lot of dilemmas in life. And we pray about things. And we think that this could be the best you know, outcome of a situation. But if I know my Heavenly Father wants to give good gifts, I try to trust him with what's best even if I don't always understand it. Now, Jesus in Luke 11, you, you'll see it's the same uh, content here. But he says something about fathers that Luke records, and here's what it says. If you then, Luke eleven thirteen, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give what? The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Now, Matthew's version says good things, Luke's version says the Holy Spirit. Does Matthew have in mind that the ultimate good thing is the Holy Spirit? I would argue probably yes. I don't know for sure. But we see the link in Luke 11. And let me just make a comment on this. When you are trying to navigate a situation, you have a helper from heaven. His name is the Holy Spirit. He's the third person of the Holy Trinity. He's come to help you lead you into truth, comfort you, come alongside you literally. What does Jesus mean that the Lord will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Well, in a believing context, I believe it means an infilling of the Holy Spirit or maybe wisdom from on high since the Spirit lives inside of us. Think about it with me. The spiritual man can discern all things. The Holy Spirit imparts gifts like discernment, 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15. Words of wisdom and words of knowledge, 1 Corinthians 12, 8. The discerning of spirits or distinguishing, distinguishing between spirits, 1 Corinthians 12, 10. He's the divine distributor of gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. We're called to earnestly seek the best gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, 31. Love being the preeminent one. I want you to see this. That when you are wrestling with a situation and you pray... The Lord promises to impart wisdom from the Spirit so you can understand kingdom values. You have a helper, amen? It's a good time for an amen. You have a helper on high, and when you ask, the Lord will give you. Ask, seek, knock, and it will be given. What he promises to give you is wisdom to make the right judgment. 
to discern it. And it may take a while, and it may be a process, but the process in and of itself is a good thing because the process helps you to grow. And that's one of the goals that God has in mind. So if it were just easy, and the moment you ask, seek, and knock, which seems to be a progression here, you just get it, oh, that's what I should do, then there's no process. And James tells us that even when we're going through trials, the process itself matures us. We learn more of God's way. We learn to search out wisdom. We learn to rely upon the Holy Spirit. Do you see? This is the way it works. And then the the capping idea called the golden rule is in verse 12. Therefore, however you want people to treat you, so treat them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is another way to say love God, love people. It's pretty much the same thing. It's called the golden rule. However you want to be treated, however you'd want someone to point out the speck in your eye, treat them the same way. This sums up the law and the prophets. That's a radical statement. So the next time I want to be critical of someone or point out a speck or even a log, I have to keep in mind that the way I judge is going to come back to me, right? So I want to do a little healthy self-examination. And if I've searched my heart, searched my motive, and my motive was to lovingly, graciously remove a splinter, then I think I'm in pretty good shape. But if I begin to search my heart and realize, you know what, I'm coming down on that person and I do the same thing, only worse, I've got a major log in my eye, then I might want to Get that out first before I go to them. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, we need, the, we need the heart of the king. We need the heart of the ultimate judge. I want to take you to a scene as we are closing here. Remember the woman who's caught in the act, very act of adultery and she gets dragged in front of Jesus. And they say, this woman was caught in the very act this is what the law of Moses says, but what do you say? And of course, we know they're trying to trap Jesus. Jesus kneels down and he begins to write in the ground. We don't know what he wrote, but he writes and, and they're waiting, you know, with bated breath. Come on, come on, give us an answer. What do you say? What do you say? And Jesus raises up famously and remember what he said? All right, you who are without logs, to, you, you who have no sin, Go ahead and throw the first rock of judgment at her. And from the oldest to the youngest, they dropped the rocks. They dropped, you know, they realized who they were. They got confronted and they left because many of them knew why they were there. And you know why they were there? They could care less about what she did. They were trying to trap him and he called them out. And one by one, they walked away and he looked at the woman and he said, woman, where, where are your condemners? Where are your accusers? She looked around. There are none, Lord. Then neither do I condemn you. But go and sin no more. And he lovingly removed the speck or maybe the log. And he did it the way I think we're called to do it. Kingdom judgment. It's not a negative thing. It's doing the right thing for the right reason and having the king's heart. For mercy indeed triumphs over judgment. And Lord, we see you on the cross and we see how when everybody was condemning you and judging you and mocking you, you asked for their forgiveness. Oh, Lord. Your kingdom is so different from the world that we live in and sometimes so distant from the heart that I see in myself. I can be quick to judge I can baptize some categories that I think I'm okay. You know, I can criticize this or that. And, but in the end, Lord, I have to do some healthy self-examination. In fact, I got to let you look at my heart and my eyes. Earlier, Lord, you talked about the eyes and you said, you know, if your eyes are full of light, you'll be good. And if they're full of darkness, if they're blocked by logs or the like, it won't be good. And Father, together as a community of saints, as citizens of the kingdom of God, would you help us? Because we're going to be faced with things. It won't be long until we have 
the first intersection where we have to make a call. It won't be long until we have to decide how we're going to react or what we're going to do or whether we're going to continue one path or another. Thank you, Father, for having your son not only come but preach sermons like this because we need to learn. And this week, would you help us to ask and seek and knock and and know that you are faithful to provide what we need. And we may not always even understand all the answers, but you are a good father who gives good gifts to your children, especially the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we are so grateful. You've not left us without help. We have help from on high. Would you keep your heart just bowed for a moment? If you're not a Christian, the Bible does say that you're under the judgment of God because you've sinned and we all have and we all fall short and God is just. But you need to know that God judged his son instead of you at the cross. And if you will repent of your sin and trust what Jesus did for you, trust in him, believe on him, well, then your sin was judged at the cross and and it's not being counted against you anymore if you're in Christ. That means you need to repent. This is not about moralism. That's not Christianity. It's about faith in the one who came to save you. If you're a prodigal and maybe you, maybe you felt judged in the past, maybe as you meditate here for a moment, you got turned off to the things of God, maybe a difficult Christian or a judgmental person turned you off and you're trying to get back, but it's hard. I just say to you that even if they got it wrong, the king knows who you are, took your judgment at the cross and loves you. And we're all learning, so maybe you can give some grace to that person who made a mistake, or maybe you made the mistake and you can give some grace to yourself. And Lord, for this precious congregation, I thank you for who they are, their hunger for the things of God, their desire to reach a lost world. We pray over our nation. We pray for righteous judgments to be made in so many areas, Lord, where there's such chaos and division pray that you'd bring us back to the king and kingdom values as a nation, as a church. The church has been divided in many ways as well, and forgive us for our divisions. Lord, may we get on the same page on essentials and on matters of opinion. May we conduct ourselves with grace. Help us in these matters. There's definitely layers to them, Lord, and we need all the help we can get. So give Would you give each believer a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit that we might have wisdom for the week ahead and might bring you glory in Christ's name.